fairly early on, we were fortunate. I always grew up with a sense of community, grateful for having had these opportunities that others aspire to still too many others in this world. So I've always felt that if you're in a position to do something about that and improve other lives, then that is your duty. So this stronger sense of purpose allows you also to do more and to overcome some of these pressures and, and the cynics and the skeptics along the way. If you can focus on things that you have your passion for, you unlock a little bit more energy than perhaps you thought was possible. Great companies are all about the people. Good people become great leaders, mentors for work and life. Welcome to Learnings from Leaders, the PNG Alumni Podcast. I'm Andrew Tarvin, humor engineer. And I'm Roman Segel, recovering marketer. Andrew and I both got our start at PNG, the Procter & Gamble company, where we both had the opportunity to work with some amazing people. And as you may know, many leaders across industries got their start at PNG. In this series, through conversations with fellow PNG alums, we hope to go deeper with the leaders you already know but want to know more about, how they got their start, how they make it work, and what keeps them going. It's kind of like bringing a microphone to a cup of coffee, or in my case, hot chocolate. On today's show, we're talking to PNG alumni leader Paul Pullman, Unilever's former CEO and chairman. Yeah, Roman, you had a really great conversation about how not just individuals, but companies can have meaningful impact on helping to tackle some of the world's biggest problems. Yeah. Similar to a few of our interviews, I was really fanboy going into this one. So here's a quick bio about Paul Pullman. He is the co-founder of Imagine, a new organization which mobilizes business leaders around tackling climate change and global inequality. But Paul also happens to be the former CEO and chairman of Unilever, which he led from 2009 to 2018 making and meeting some pretty big social impact and sustainability goals, proving that a long-term multi-stakeholder approach to tackling big problems can drive excellent business performance. Prior to Unilever, Paul was Nestle CFO and the head of the Americas. And before that, he got his start at, you guessed it, Procter & Gamble, where he spent 27 years rising through the ranks, ultimately leading Europe for Procter & Gamble. Paul has become and continues to be very active on the world stage, bringing the private and public sectors together. He partnered with the United Nations Secretary General to develop the UN Sustainable Development Goals, of which he continues to be an advocate to push the 2030 development agenda. Paul is chair of the International Chamber of Commerce, the B-Team, Said Business School, and vice chair of the UN Global Compact. Paul's been described by the Financial Times as a standout CEO of the past decade, and it goes without saying that he's a leading proponent that business should be a force for good. What I love about, I mean, all of that was also, though, that, that Paul has become this influential advocate for challenging the status quo and showing that a business, you know, showing that original kind of business as usual is not an option really anymore. Yeah. And he's really still operating on this world stage, especially in the trying times we're in right now. And we talked a little bit about that, but he's influencing the private sector, but also partnering with the UN to influence what the public sector does. Yeah. Fun fact about the UN that I recently learned is that in many countries, they call it United Nations Organization, UNO, or UNO for short, which if you think about it, is a way better name, right? Because if, if like a dictator is rising up, they can be like, wait, we're UNO, skip. Yeah, that's, that's terrible, Drew. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So uh, I got to ask, man, what's your favorite SDG? Well, I don't know. There's so many. There's 17 to choose from. You don't know them, do you, Drew? All of them, no, but uh, I'm sure no poverty is on the list. Drew, this has been called the world's most important to-do list, and you you don't actually know what they are. I don't know. No. Uh, what about you? You tell me one. Name one. 
climate change. All right. Yeah, that is one. Climate change is well, it's it's impacted by over across a couple of them actually, but it's it's pretty clear that that we like probably many of our audience have some more research to do, but people can do that if they visit sustainabledevelopment.un.org. You totally just cheated and looked that up on your phone. Google searching something is the most important way to show that you care. All right. <laughs> so we joke, but What's not a joke is that this is some serious stuff that Paul is working on, and that's why he's being interviewed and discussed with on this podcast and not Drew and I. But in in all seriousness, we could all do better to learn more at home and at work in kind of making the world better, right? And hearing Paul's stories and perspectives, like it did for me, should inspire you to do the same. So we hope you'll enjoy our conversation with Paul Pullman. Paul, welcome to the podcast. It's really great to have you here. Oh, thank you for having me. Appreciate it. Yeah. So, Paul, many already know your professional story, right? 27 years rising through the ranks of Procter, ultimately leading Europe, Nestle CFO, head of Americas, and ultimately capping your corporate career as CEO of Unilever for almost a decade. But honestly, beyond your leading and growing one of the world's top companies, I think you, you're more impressive because you importantly set audacious long-term social impact and sustainability goals. And you've been really active on the world stage, bridging the private and public sector. So, most recently, you've co-founded Imagine, mobilizing business leaders around tackling climate change and global inequality. There is so much in there I want to talk about with you. But before we even do that, who were you before the beginning of your career journey, Paul? Oh, at least I could say very mildly, I was probably totally lost, not knowing what I wanted to do. <laughs> <laughs> what did you want to be when you grew up? Well, I wanted to be an adult, probably. I'm still working on it. But my first goals were when I was a teenager, I wanted to be a priest. Believe it or not, we grew up in a big family, Catholic, and somehow that caught my attention and I actually went to a seminary to study for a while. But at that time, it was already on its way down and I discovered that there probably were better things in life. So I moved on and then I had set my mind on becoming a doctor. I was very fascinated by that profession. And in the Netherlands, there's a lottery commission that gets you in. Depending on the high schools, you can go to university, but then then it still is a numerous clauses or numerous fixes, as we call it. So unfortunately, I did not make the cut there and had to look for alternatives. Some people would go to other countries to study medicine, but I didn't have the means to do that. And then you basically only have a choice. Either you go into business or you go into law, which are open uh, studies, so to speak. So I ended up in economics. The MBA program didn't exist at that time. And I started studying economics. The second year, I again applied for medicine. But again, the pool of people uh, applying obviously grows every year. So I missed out. And then I continued to study. My father always reminded me that there is a moment in life you have to earn your own living. (laughs) And then I went into the third year of economics at that time in the Netherlands. And again, I didn't get into medicine. But by then, I had done my bachelor's. Clearly wasn't motivated yet. Had sort of... uh, tried to balance my private life and my friends with uh, with studies. And I discovered that a lot of the books were in English and the MBA programs were coming up in the US. So I thought I might as well go to the US. My father at that time was working for a company that was bought up by Kutrich, the tire company. So he said, why don't you go to Akron, Ohio, grow up, learn a language, work a little bit in, uh, in a how old were you when you moved? So how old were you when you moved over to Akron? When I moved to the US, I was 21. Okay. And I'd done my bachelor's in the Netherlands at the University of Groningen. 
And so then I arrived in the U.S. The only flight I could get was to Cincinnati. I said, you must be kidding. I'm not going to Akron, Ohio. Doesn't <laughs> sound very appealing to me in due respect. So I started ringing doorbells at universities there, but I didn't have any grades with me from the Netherlands. I didn't have any money. I didn't know anything. So I went to Xavier University, Miami University, Cincinnati. And Cincinnati, University of Cincinnati, I first went to home economics. That shows you how much I knew. And then finally, I found Karoo Tower, which is where economics was taught. And I climbed up the tower from the inside, not from the outside, <laughs> and met a professor who was the dean of the school, economics, and Professor Craycraft. And he said, this doesn't make any sense. You don't have any money. You don't have any grades. What the heck are you doing here? I explained to him the situation. He said, listen, if you teach Samuel Elson 101, if you pass the TOEFL test, and if you get straight A's in your first semester, then I'll, I'll pay for the tuition wow. and you get a, a teaching assistantship. So I worked like a donkey. At the same time, I had to earn money. So I was working in P&G buildings as a maintenance man, believe it or not, on uh, Reading, in Reading. And then while well, I passed that test, fortunately, and the rest is history. I ended up staying there, finishing my economics. But halfway through my studies, I met a professor called Melnick, who was teaching finance in the business school. So he said, why don't you work for me? At that time, he was working on these rate utility cases and the Mondigliani and Miller theories of the price theories and economics are very close to the origins of the finance in the MBA programs, if you might. So then I ended up doing my MA and my MBA and most of all, having a good time in Cincinnati. And then how did you get your foot in the door at Proctor? You started in, I believe, the finance function, right? So I don't know. At that time, people said if you graduated in 79, the market was tough. But, you know, we were naive. We didn't know about it. I did have, I'd met my wife who went to the College Conservatory of Music. She's a cello uh, teacher, a player now, and has her trios and orchestra that she plays in. But uh, that was a reason for me to hang around the University of Cincinnati, obviously and finish my studies. But because I was doing my MA and my MBA, I had to take night classes and uh -huh. uh, crank in my time because I had to be a stu student assistant and I had to also work as a maintenance man throughout my studies. So I had to take night classes. And in these night classes were a lot of P&G people. Oh, this is a great company. You need to join. I'm one of those who spelt it wrong on the application form. I've been reminded. I, I thought it was a law firm when they came to campus. <laughs> I had no idea what it was either. But anyway, <laughs> they were all in night school with me. And it happened to be, to be honest, that the, the building in Reading where I was maintenance man, building walls, painting, putting lighting in, pass, you know, walk pass outside and all the other things, was a wonderful guy who lived in Kentucky who was the maintenance man. But that was a PNG rented building. So I saw a little bit of PNG from that angle. And then I met wonderful people at university and they said, you have to apply. So I went to put in my admission. I don't know why they picked it, but as a coincidence, they were looking for these Europeans who had done an American MBA yeah. because they didn't quite trust our education over <laughs> here. And they had an opening just when I walked in the door, literally, they had an opening and they offered me a job. And I started working in Belgium. And yeah, they put you on a plane and sent you back. <laughs> well, then they said, you have to go to Belgium. Yeah. They said, your salary is 30000 I couldn't believe it. I asked all my friends those days, how much were you earning? And 30000 was quite a lot. But I forgot to ask them which currency. It turned out to be <laughs> Belgian francs. And then they said, you know, 
They said, oh, these were stingy people in those days. And then they said, well, you, you can't take your... I said, I have a girlfriend and she wants to go with me to Europe. We might get married. No, in those days, P&G wouldn't pay for that. So we quickly got married. We got married in two, two weeks. I went back to the office and said, oops, he's not my girlfriend anymore. She's my wife. Oh, in that case, we pay for you. <laughs> and that was... Uh, we didn't have any money. So the company moved both of us and... You know, and by the way, we met at the University of Cincinnati in a class called uh, Collective Bargaining. She had to take it because of actors' equity. I had to take it because of the AFL-CIO and, and all these other things. And uh, so that's where we met. And after 40 years of Marriott, we're still working on it. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. <laughs> so to jump back into your career, so they put you on a plane, you're in Belgium with your new wife, making... 30,000 Swiss francs, or sorry, Belgian francs. Belgian francs. Not Swiss francs. That would be a slightly better salary, yes, I would imagine. Would. In those first few years, what's like an early moment, an early story from the first few years on the job, a lesson learned? Well, I moved around fairly quickly. I was one year in the factory in Belgium in Malines, Mechelen. There we, we, would, we made Pringles there that's now sold to Kellogg, and we made detergents there. And I was there and being a cost analyst, as it was called, and doing cost accounting and basically trying to work with the R&D department that was located at the factory to cost new formulas to see if it would make economic sense. Mm -hmm, And mm -hmm. at the same time, work on something that was called box costs, which where how do you optimize the factory costing if you want to. And that is still the case. We were thinking, doesn't it come to an end? We find savings and savings and savings. <laughs> but, you know, 40 years long, 40 years later, the job is still there. and people Squeezing still, water from a rock, right? Still uh, looking mm-hmm. for more savings. But anyway, we were supposed to be management. I obviously was on the bottom of the totem pole and we had to sit in these safety uh, meetings, which were extremely important. But I was obviously very young, didn't see the importance of it. Many of these safety issues were kind of ridiculous. So I filled in a form and I told the, uh, at that time we had to wear ties and all that. So I told the plant manager a major safety accident that I had tripped over my tie and bumped my head and I had made this whole fictitious story just to tell him how ridiculous the safety meetings were. So he called me in his office and I was nearly fired because not taking safety seriously in a factory is a sin, obviously. And uh, my funny story I had concocted on the paper in English was obviously not appreciated. So I learned a lesson there and and I preferred to keep my job so I behaved <laughs> from then on. But struggling every day in English to try to make these recommendations work, seeing people in the factory who had never spoken another language having to fill it out in in English and, you know, working day and night with a dictionary next to them for you know, for a small recommendation. I remember going to Brussels where the head office was and I had to explain to my boss this uh, cost of this new formula. And that was the first stamp I had on a piece of paper that said, secret, only originator may copy. I thought I worked for the FBI and CIA. <laughs> and that I had the most important document on PNG in, in my possession with the biggest news that was going to obviously double the stock price or half it uh, globally. So I went to Brussels and tried to see the general manager at that time and the finance manager was kind enough to let me in, trying to show off his new recruit. And the guy said, why do you bring him into my office? I don't want to see new people. And this is nonsense. You deal with that yourself. And, you know, so my world collapsed because <laughs> from my very secret stamp, I discovered that I was just a small thing in a big system. So it made me a little bit humble at the time. I probably needed it most. It Was there anything 
in, in the early years or even later on in your career that maybe didn't work out the way you wanted it to? I know, I know there, we all have tons of those stories. I guess the question is, what's one of the most impactful lessons learned from something not working out the way you wanted? Well, interestingly, I have to honestly tell you, Ramon, I never really planned too much. So you might think I'm a great planner. I'm not. Life is with a lot of serendipities. I've always operated under the principle of creating a lot of opportunities and then picking the one that is most desirable or most needed or most wanted. There might be different motivations at different points in life. And then I never look back. You know, I was one year in Malines, then I was one year in in Belgium, in financial analysis, then the guy in the Netherlands quit and they said, don't you want to go to the Netherlands? I said, bingo, I sure do. <laughs> uh, I was Dutch, but I ended up being in the Netherlands like an international. Yeah. So, you know, mana from heaven. I could afford to live in a house that I would otherwise never have been able to. We had a great time in the Netherlands. Our first son was born. Then they moved us to France. I spent three years in finance there. And then one of the general managers said, you know, do you want to be in marketing, at least for training? And I said, I don't really want to. I like finance. They said, well, but it's a no-brainer. You can just get a little better if you get a marketing experience. You go back to finance. And then, right. and then I stayed in marketing and got my career there, moved to Spain, the UK, uh, Cincinnati, Geneva. Was there and, ever a moment uh, where you didn't take your foot off the gas really. pedal? What? Well, in the beginning, you, have, you, you need your financial security. You're building your family. You want to be sure that you have a minimum standard of living. You're climbing the muscle of hierarchy. And that was important. It was when I went to Newcastle after Spain, actually in Spain already, wonderful environment for the kids to grow up. I actually asked the company to be there six years. Many of your colleagues were calling you because if you had a six-year assignment in P&G, the word was sort of that your career had ended. But we just simply loved it there. And we had a great balance there between seeing the kids grow up and living outdoors and being close to the uh, Kratos, which is a wonderful mountain range and, and great friends. And then I moved to Newcastle, where I replaced Mike Clasper, who was a wonderful leader yeah. in Unilever at that time. And Mike was a good friend, is still a good friend. And he was from Sunderland, which was up in Newcastle, where we had the office. And he had gotten involved very much into the local community. This was shipbuilding, steel, coal, all of that had gone belly up. And this was the first time in my life that I actually saw second generation people unemployed, where they had never seen their parents work. And the only thing they could get was a baby when they were 14 or 15 years old, making situations worse. Drugs were a big problem. And Mike had put P&G really on the map by being actively involved in a lot of community activity. And that really balanced my life because I went from a half person orientated on your career, trying to do well, serve the company, be a good soldier, all these things that you will know, keep your head down when you had to, into really understanding that our role is much bigger. And I call that a little bit of a defining moment for moving, moving from a half person to a full person. And I kind of enjoyed the, the positions I held in the board of the Newcastle Initiative or the university or some of the other things I got involved in. And to see how companies like ours can have just a tremendous impact in the communities in which they operate. So would you say, I mean, a divine moment, is that like almost an awakening on what was going on in the broader world beyond the P&L that you were managing then? Well, we've always been a little bit broader than some people growing up in a little city somewhere in the Midwest. Yeah. So uh, I had a broader attention span with a lot of things. I wouldn't say that, but I think it brought home the realities of a lot of people that live in less fortunate circumstances. And it also brings home that if you are in a privileged position, 
like in my case, running the biggest company in the North at that time in Newcastle, that you also with that size and freedom that you have also comes responsibility. Yeah, with great power comes great responsibility. Yeah, Viktor Frankl in his book, Man's Search for Meaning, said when they built the Statue of Liberty on the East Coast of the United States, they forgot to build the Statue of Responsibility on the West Coast. And that goes hand in hand. And we obviously need to assume that responsibility. So I think it was one of these pivotal moments in life that you get these crucibles that you know, but it's also related to your age. I was mid-30s, approaching 40. How old were the kids at the time? uh, How old were the kids at the time? Oh, they were teenagers. They were teenagers trying to learn Jordi. And uh, (laughs) not easy. I think we were the only foreigners, quote, unquote, up there at that time, walking around with a dictionary to try to figure out what they were all saying. But it's, you know, you, you become a little bit more mature and you see that you have a responsibility, not only as a parent or as a father and all the other things, but more importantly, also running an enormous institution like that. And there were some great people around, like Mike, who had set the example. Otherwise, I might not even have had the courage to do that. So I'm grateful for that. You know, you've often cited the saying, if you ever want to get something done, ask a busy person. (laughs) (laughs) Mentioning, you know, the idea of a sense of duty, you know, on things you deem important that that keep you from saying no. And I I find that happening a lot. I, I get involved with causes, nonprofits, advisory boards, passion projects, like a podcast, for example. <laughs> so I can re- <laughs> but I can relate. But the flip side of that, and this is what I think a lot of us at my stage in career, is that you run the risk of burning out or even letting important balls drop. And the, the career acceleration that you mentioned was dizzying. The awakening and the divine recognition of the responsibility you had in Newcastle beyond the business how did you manage juggling all those balls and a young family, teenagers who were looking up to you? Yeah, I would definitely also say, Ramon, that one of my weaknesses is the ability to to not be able to say no. And I've been accused of that many times. And my wife has read me the riot acts at times. And I'm sure... There are wives are probably playing uh, from the same playbook, I think. <laughs> yeah, my biggest fear was always when we had the annual meeting in Cincinnati that the wives one day would unionize themselves and all get together and gang up against us. And they had all the reasons to. So I'm grateful that she did a lot in raising the family and gave us the opportunity to uh, also sometimes disproportionately focus on our career. So I'm not the one that is going to tell you that we were holy. But fairly early on, I, I, I felt that we were fortunate, that I was fortunate enough to be born in the Netherlands. I was the first one in my family that went to university. My parents were deprived of that because they grew up during the war. They wanted us to have a better life. They wanted peace in Europe. They already, when I grew up just after the Second World War, were working a lot with people from Turkey and others that were less fortunate. With the church and Boy Scouts, we were doing a lot of things. So I always grew up with a sense of community and and grateful for having had these opportunities that, that others aspire to still, too many others in this world. So I've always felt that if you're in a position to do something about that and and improve other lives, then that is your duty. So this stronger sense of purpose allows you also to do more and to overcome some of these pressures and and the cynics and the skeptics along the way, if I may say. And we are fortunate enough that we are financially independent, that we're educated, and that we can live and work where we want. And and in that case, that's a, a big thing off your shoulders. And if you can then focus on things that you have your passion for, you unlock a little bit more energy than perhaps you thought was possible. So I've never really believed in work-life balance. I know that gets a lot of people upset. But I've always thought, in my case, 
that my work was part of my life balance. And, and I've been very fortunate in most of my jobs. I've quit a few times out of frustration when my wife told me to grow up and go back to work the next day. But, but that's all fine because it makes you appreciate some of the other things. But I've been very fortunate. So I'm not the one to complain. And I remind myself of that every day, to be honest. I, it's, I think it's important. That, yeah, I, balance is a tricky word, I think. And I think it has to do with one should inform the other. One should fuel the other, right? Like, it's not quite an integration, but it's the idea of it gets you up in the morning. You know what you're no, working for, or you know what you're yeah, looking absolutely. for. Absolutely. And, and we, are, we can make those choices. So when we make a choice to become a CEO of Unilever, which is a tremendous responsibility, but also a, a demand on your time beyond what some people realize, perhaps, but you make that choice. So when you make these choices, have a discussion. And it doesn't make any sense to take an international job and then keep complaining that you hate flying mm-hmm. or to become a CEO of Unilever and keep complaining that you can't sail in the Bahamas. You have made those choices. So once you have made those choices, you need to you know, put your energy into some other things that are more constructive. Yeah. During my career, I've seen many people come to you. Oh, I've always moved around. The company owes me this. Or I've worked so long, the company owes you that. No, the company doesn't owe you anything. In yeah. fact, nobody owes you anything. You need to justify yourself why you should be part of something. Well, you owe it to yourself. You owe it to yourself to, to live in the choice. That standard is yours. And it's different for people that work in a textile factory in Bangladesh or are poor farmers for in sure, Africa. Sure. That's a whole different discussion. But for people like us, let's face reality here for a second. Well, well to shift gears into some of the themes we're, we're already touching on, you've been cited as wanting to reinvent capitalism and that the reason businesses have been created is to serve society. And first, you were preaching to the choir, like I'm all in, and I, I've heard some of your talks, I've listened to some of the interviews. You know, you you basically are seeking a more sustainable and equitable version of capitalism. And beyond being bold words, again, which I am a big fan of, this seems like really hard work to move that ball uphill. And I know you've managed to do it from a seat of great influence, right? There's the CEO of Unilever. But how can the new crop of rising leaders at Bigco, so mid-career professionals, those not yet at the head of the table, how do we get started rolling up our sleeves in the office or influencing our companies to do this. Is that, or do you, is that even possible, or should you just go do that on the weekends? No, it's absolutely possible, but not only possible, Ramon, it's absolutely needed. This is such a tremendous task that we have ahead of us. And this COVID crisis is just one of the reminders of the need to live in harmony with planet Earth and with uh, our fellow citizens. Uh, the COVID crisis has shown that you cannot have healthy people on an unhealthy planet. And more and more people are realizing that. Broadly, I would say the reason why companies like P&G since uh, 1837 or Nestle since 1857 or Unilever around that time have been around for over 100 years or more is that these companies have such strong values and are purpose-driven that they are built to last. I firmly believe that. And these institutions work because the combined values of the people that work there make it so strong and that it is difficult for any individual to negatively affect that. Even if some of the leaders might have tried that over the years, you've always seen that these institutions rebounded. So when it comes to the economic environment that we need, it's very clear that the crisis already in 2007, 2008, showed us that too many people were left behind, high levels of debt, overconsumption, that that was unsustainable. Unfortunately, we haven't learned the lesson from this. And here we are 10 years later, again, facing the COVID crisis. 
the way that we now have to move to a sustainable world requires the work of all of us. We need to attack the burning issue of climate change. We need to change our food systems. We need to now look at our healthcare systems. We've all discovered that we need to make it more inclusive. Even in countries like the United States, one in five children is now dependent on the food program. You have poverty levels that are beyond that that country has ever seen. You have to go back to well before the Great Depression. And governance is clearly broken. The, the way COVID is being handled has cost many additional lives, totally unnecessarily in the U.S. Some people estimate over 38,000. So the role of business and the role of all of us is going to step up if we want to make this world work. And to change these systems requires an effort that demands that all of us that can do something about it are involved in it. Some of us can be in our daily lives and how we live and how we live towards others. And some of that can be in the, in the jobs and the positions that we hold. It doesn't need to be a CEO level. It can be at any level in the organization. It's our duty, actually. It could be very simple in terms of savings, in terms of converting to green energy. It could be training people into the broader issues of life and mentoring. It could be in trying to get through to the senior management. And fortunately, I think that is moving. People have understood that we have issues of climate change, even if you're in Ohio, believe it or not. And people have understood that inequality is not good, that we need to address that. So businesses that have been run on a multi-stakeholder, longer-term model, putting the sustainable development goals at its core, i.e. a strong purpose, these businesses tended to do better during the recession already now. And I also believe they come out better. And increasingly, we're seeing that ESG funds in the financial market are outperforming the non-ESG funds. When I started the journey 10 years ago with Unilever, and my tenure was exactly 10 years, I didn't want one day shorter and one day longer. But it was very difficult. We didn't have the data. There were a lot of skeptics and cynics out there. Well, one of the things you did is one of the things you did was you got rid of the quarterly reporting. Well, I did what's more. I had to send a sign in the beginning that we were going for the longer term. You cannot yeah. solve all these issues we talk on a short-term basis. So I, I stopped guidance, but I also stopped uh, quarterly reporting. I changed compensation systems and and did quite a lot of other things to ensure that the organization could focus on the longer term. When it becomes short term and these quarterly targets, which P&G, Nestle, Unilever have all suffered from at some time in their yeah, history, yeah. you start doing the wrong thing. And that's not a way to run a company. So I'm very glad that when I left that uh, the company was uh, in a very good financial shape. It helped to uh, weather the current storm, that our pension fund was fully funded, which is not the case for any company nowadays in Europe that we didn't have any liabilities hanging out there, but that we just run this company as we should be running it like we would do it as if it was our own money. And now a word from our sponsor. On today's show, we're talking to Vivek Sundar, CEO of Swiggy, the leading food delivery service in India. Vivek, India is the world's largest market. How did you approach scaling such a complicated business in such a crazy market? Well, crazy markets call for crazy solutions. India is the world's craziest market for this business, and I'll tell you why. Consumers have taste preferences that absolutely would be from different planets. You can take different parts of India and there would be different countries when it comes to their culinary preferences. Roads and traffic is a nightmare. And we need to use technology to be able to solve all of this. So we believe that we've harnessed the power of good people, the power of technology and the power of operations to solve this problem. 
We asked consumers to tell us which cities to go into. We asked consumers to tell us which restaurants to add. And in many cases, we asked college students to become the city CEOs and made them part of the journey to Blitzscale. So when it took us four years to get to 10 cities, in the next 18 months, we added 550 cities. And how is the solution that you're providing to Indians different from similar solutions we have in the US and Europe? The solution that works in America is never going to work in India. Traffic is crazy. Roads are crazy. People drive like crazy. So when you're trying a Domino's-like promise with over a hundred thousand restaurants, which all have their own sweet way to do things and making good that promise, it requires three things. Intense technology in every little part of the operation. It requires you to be able to deal with problems that you can't even foresee in a normal working world. And it requires a human system that is intense in the training and the measurement of it. And so essentially we believe we understand understand the craziness of the consumers better than other people. We believe we understand how to use technology and we believe we leverage the power of the people in a really good way. And that's how we make it work. Now, you were telling me that there's actually a ton of Americans using the product. Can you explain that? There's a lot of people who are sitting in America and their old parents are locked down and they're saying, dad and mom, you shouldn't leave the place. Stay in at home. You're you're vulnerable. And they're in India. Their parents are 10,000 kilometers away in India. They're not listening to their kids. So the kids are basically saying, I'm going to make sure now that Swiggy delivers food, but also delivers groceries, also delivers pharmacies, also delivers pretty much anything, then I'm going to sit in California and have it all delivered to their homes. So it's funny how many people are firing up their apps in San Jose and saying, I want my father to get his vitamins. So basically sending the guy to a local chemist and picking up vitamins and delivering it to their parents' home. That's happening now. A friend called me up and said, listen, it's my dad's birthday. How do I surprise him? I said, you downloaded the app and 32 minutes later, Black Forest Cake was on his father's door. His father literally couldn't believe it. He called him up and said, how do you do this? I want to do this as well. Wow. That's amazing. It's making a real difference in people's lives. How big are you guys? So being a single country app, to be in the list of one of the world's most downloaded and used apps in the world is something that makes us and very young company pretty proud. I don't think there would be an urban Indian who has not seen a yellow t-shirted Swiggy delivery boy in the last six months. And we're talking 600 million people having noticed a Swiggy delivery boy on the streets. We have millions and millions of people ordering food every single day. But the important thing is how frequently people use us. I mean, if you take a typical e-commerce person, he's likely to open the app and use it maybe 10 times a year. But our power users often order 50 times a month. That's insane. When you take the number of millions of users and you multiply that by the fact that they're opening the app maybe 100 times a month, and ordering it from 50 times a month. It, that kind of frequency and stickiness is just crazy. It puts a lot of pressure on us and a responsibility to deliver. Wow. If people want to learn a little bit more about your business, how can they find out more about Swiggy? Well, now you can just download the app. And if you have a friend, even if you don't have a father sitting in India, if you have a friend, just, just ship something nice to him. In COVID, it'll be a nice surprise. So I think that's the best way to do it because we have a website and we have a LinkedIn page and there are some more boring ways of finding out. But I'd say just download the app and deliver some, some goodness and some sweets to your friend in India. I love the enthusiasm and the work that you guys are doing for a really complicated problem and a really interesting solution. So, Vivek, thanks so much. Thank you. And now... Back to our show. You've often described the difference between everything you're saying rings to this quote that you've said. The difference between a politician and a statesman is that a politician thinks about the next election, or in the case of business, the next quarter or the next year, while the statesman thinks about the next generation, Absolutely. the pension, the five year legacy, not of you, but of what the business is going to do. Absolutely. So I asked you the first question about what should someone on the inside do, right? Mid career management. Look, there's gaps in leadership. You've called them out. But honestly, my biggest frustration with what's going on right now has to do with the decisions being made. 
it's almost like some of these things unfortunately are inevitable, but the decisions and how we've handled them are that those are the real gaps in leadership. So my question to you, as an influential leader in the public and the private sectors, what more should we expect or demand out of our leaders? So it's very clear that with this COVID crisis, once more, that the, the black swan, the black swan was not the COVID crisis itself. In fact, we had right. a pandemic now every five years or less. We've had SARS, we've had Ebola, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. we've had Zika and all the other things. And the more we play with modern nature and, and animal life gets encroached into our human life, we will get more of these pandemics. The big black swan here was really the absence of global governance and the lack of leadership from our politicians, not only in the US, but in many other countries, including here in Europe. And that has been a big disappointment. But on the other hand, I've been very pleased to see the business community filling that void in many places and stepping in and going well beyond the call of duty, first to save lives that goes by itself, but then also saving livelihoods by providing work and a sort of a safety network that is still missing in many of the countries. And now you can Again, you see the business community advocating not to just restart the economies or rebuild, but building it back better and accelerating the move to a greener economy. Is it their Many job? Is it their job to do it themselves or to influence the the political well, leadership? Well, they're not elected, and uh, they don't have all the wisdom, and nor do they have all the credibility. Many of the business leaders still operate with a high level of mistrust, and frankly, that is justified. Stephen Covey, in his book Seven Habits, said it very well that you cannot. You cannot talk yourself out of things you've behaved yourself into. This is a good opportunity for (laughs) business leaders to now behave themselves out of it. And I'm very pleased to see that many of the business leaders are speaking up that we should not turn back emission standards or that we should not turn back environmental standards or that we should only bail out industries that have paid tax or that are not located in tax havens, or you know that are the economies of the future and not the economies of the past. And the politicians need to hear that. They're swamped. They are living in the here and now. They're increasingly shorter term. They don't have that space to think longer term like we do. And it is in business's interest. A business cannot succeed in societies that fail. And they have understood the enormous cost that crises is like this uh, bring so they also want to actively be part of the solution here and the business role is more to de-risk the political process to advocate to speak up to recommend but to be very respectful to do that together with civil society and governments and good governments understand that don't forget that we have over a hundred governments that have signed up to the paris agreements for example that want to decarbonize the global economy that know how important it is we just have a few big governments in the world that tend to be more disproportionately influential, yeah. where leaders are have become populists and try to chase their own agenda. And that's unfortunate. And without calling out these countries, it, again, <laughs> it is the duty of the business yeah. community to balance that. In the US, for example, you've seen the America Pledge movement or the We Are Still In movement. Mm-hmm. I'm very proud to see that about 70% of subnational governments or states, cities, uh, businesses are still working very hard to ensure that the U.S. stays within the Paris Agreement commitments. We need that. There's no alternative. Any other reasoning doesn't lead to anything, despite what people are trying to tell you. And the good thing is now we're at a point that moving towards a greener economy yeah. is actually uh, gets more return from your investments to do that. It creates then better it, then jobs it costs, yeah. and more jobs and, uh, and it prepares you for the future. So it's also more secure jobs. And if you put in infrastructure, you restore your natural capital, 
you build bike paths, you retrofit buildings. These are actually all things you can do within your country. So for presidents that are worried about their trade balance, a greener economy is also better from that respect. I had a, a friend, a guy I used to work with at Proctor, and he saw some of the headlines about what, what the local governments were doing, what the, at the governor and the mayor and during the current crisis. And his tweet was, you know what we really need? A national governor. Wouldn't that be nice? <laughs> <laughs> well, we need people that understand that they're putting the interest of others ahead of themselves. Yeah. They'll also be better off themselves. We are first and foremost citizens of planet Earth. Yeah. Climate change doesn't know boundaries. The COVID uh, pandemic doesn't know boundaries. So do the financial markets now, it seems, and many of the other things, cybersecurity. So we would be well served to work a little bit better together. And it is sad to see how some are abdicating their global responsibilities at a time that we need it most. And we need so to fight for that. If, if you had a coffee, a 30-minute coffee with some of these leaders that we've kind of called out or that are absentee leaders, what would you tell them? What advice would you give them? Or how would you frame the argument to them? Well, the first thing I think that the COVID crisis has shown is that uh, science might be back in. Some of these leaders have denied climate science, although it's overwhelming. But for some reason now, COVID pandemic has lifted up the medical community, the science community. There's a little level of, of, of credibility back around science. And it has also shown the need to work together. Unfortunately, many of these countries have put export barriers in place around PPE material. Now with a looming food crisis around agriculture and some other things. So I would tell them a little bit of why don't we unite first around some of these joint values that we have so that we can celebrate what we have in common instead of diving the wedges around often the smaller things where we, are, where we differ. So, for example, dignity and respect for everybody ought to be one of these values. Equity, giving everybody equal opportunities, ought to be one of these values. A certain level of compassion or implementing the golden rule, do unto others and the planet as you would like to have done unto yourselves, which you find in every religion, for that matter, ought to be one of our values. So if we can spend a little bit more time aligning people on these values, and then explaining to them really with hopefully increasingly more sound science and the voice of the people at large now, because that's such a big discrepancy now in every country between what the people actually want and what the politicians are giving us, but helping them there, having then sympathy with these politicians. Mm -hmm. Any of the politicians you talk to individually will actually tell you that they would like to do things differently than they're able to, which is very sad. There are many Republicans in the U.S. Senate that I meet or in the House that actually would like to be more aggressive on climate change, but they are taking the party line. They lack that leadership. But if we provide them with an environment that gives them more safety in the polls, with the business community speaking up, etc., then I also think the politicians will have a little bit more space to maneuver and hopefully take better decisions in the end. So turning towards optimism, you know, another person you've quoted in the past is Archbishop Desmond Tutu, who said, I am a prisoner of hope. I love that quote. Yeah. So, so what excites you about the future? Well, there's hope. Obviously, hope is very important. And what excites me there is technology, obviously digital. Good thing now that we're all working at home, that we at least have made some advances there. Yeah. And it allowed us to do this broadcast. But there's a technology that is advancing. The price of solar and energy have come down 90% in the last five to 10 years and is now cheaper than 
fossil fuel in, in 70% of the world's countries, for example, we're moving very fast to making hydrogen or carbon capture storage or battery capacity comes within our reach at very attractive economics. Here again, the whole world going together to fight this pandemic at a speed that we've never seen before. So I'm an optimist because of technology. I'm an optimist also because of young people. Young people have hope. It's their future. They don't want us to talk about all these problems. They want to be included to help find these solutions. They're creative. They know how to better navigate this environment than many of us do. And frankly, I'm also a little bit hopeful of transparency because at the end of the day, the internet has many downsides, but it has allowed us for a higher level of transparency. We can measure everything we do. We can see the impacts. And transparency also influences behavior. And ultimately, we are better able now, I think, to call out the bad behavior from the good behavior. And increasingly, the citizens of this world are willing to put their money more behind the good behavior than the bad one. So I'm optimistic about that as well. Well, sunlight is the best disinfectant, right? And sunlight, that is one of the Unilever bar soaps, which you shouldn't use in this <laughs> podcast when half of the PNG people listen, but it is definitely one this of is, the This is a business podcast for PNGers and non pngers uh, It's definitely one of the better disinfectants. That's for sure. <laughs> uh, we, we can debate that if you'd like. Uh, <laughs> no, you don't have to. So, you know, we've only got a few more minutes and we got to wrap up. So I want to shift gears and have some fun with just some... I thought we were having fun now, Ramon. Well, we were. We were. <laughs> <laughs> you want to dial it up. Yeah, dial it up to 11, Paul. Dial it up to 11. <laughs> What's something about you that surprises people that just people don't expect about Paul? Oh, I don't know. It depends on different people. But despite being an environmentalist or fighting for people left behind, I actually love classic car racing. I just, <laughs> uh, I just finished racing from China, from Beijing to Paris in an old Citroën DS. And so we, we love the 24 hours of Le Mans. Uh, that is so rad. Oh, Emilia, man. So... So my wife said it's totally inconsistent car racing with being an environmentalist. Uh, do you buy the carbon offsets What's in all seriousness? Well, I remind her that most of the innovations in fuel efficiency, et cetera, and carbon fiber technology actually is coming from Formula One. So there is a spin-off. <laughs> and if you, if you actually close down the whole city of Monaco for a Formula One, you probably save more emission than having all the other cars moving around. So even on the argument, but anyway, we're having fun. And that's also important to your previous question. You need to get some oxygen. You cannot just be, and I've never tried to be day and night in my office. You need to do other things, pick up a book, talk to other people, have some hobbies. You cannot live your life without getting oxygen and intellectual oxygen and ideas and friends and everything is as much is as important as the other oxygen that we need. Well, I would imagine while you were driving, right? And I experienced this doing other activities while you were in that, I don't want to call it a road race, but y- your your mind is more open or to your point, you're, you've oxygenated yourself to be Absolutely. inspired. To t- Absolutely. Yeah. You're five weeks in a car and you think about a lot of things. And I can tell you a road race civilized is much better than a rat race that most of us are in. So are you more of a book, film or a TV guy? Well, I, I read a lot because I think to read a lot at work. But now that we are here with the COVID, I've actually picked up more books and I like that. But my wife and I have also gone to watching a little bit more television, which frankly, I haven't done in the last 10 years. But I was just reading Jonathan Porritt's Hope and Hell, which is a little bit the discussion we're now having. That book is about to come out, and I was privileged to read that. I think Rebecca Henderson's Reimagining Capitalism is a very good book that I can recommend. And the future we share is from Christiana Figueres. The Future We Choose, sorry, is the book from Christiana Figueres and Tom Tarmac, who has just been issued. 
which is actually worth reading. But read what you enjoy because it's just, it's uh, you know. But the last few days we've been watching this Hollywood series on Netflix called <laughs> Mag, and it's actually worth seeing. It's hard to get in, but once you get in, and it shows you what should have happened already in the 30s, and that the film is showing you, and that has finally arrived in Hollywood. So, believe it or not, it's only in 2017 that an, a black actress got an Oscar, and it's only in 2020 that a gay scriptwriter got recognized. So we've come a long way. You might look at it positively, but it's sad that it took so long. And this film is worth looking at to remind us that we need an inclusive world and respect everybody, including everybody's sexual and reproductive rights. You know, it's interesting. A secondary project and podcast I'm working on is actually on the, discussing on that topic. Very right. much so. It's absolutely important. Where's one place you want to go back to spend more time? Well, I've been fortunate enough in my previous job as CEO of Unilever to be in all places in the world. But the one place I'd like to explore more is Indonesia. Yeah. I just was in Papua, West Papua, because it's one of the last rainforests left. You know, Bolsonaro in the Amazons is cutting it down irresponsibly. The Congo is under threat, but it's still relatively safe. But in Papua, West Papua, 60% of the forests have been given away in concessions over the years. And we're trying to unwind that to save this because that's a better way to fight climate change. 30% of the solutions are in natural solutions. It happens to be also one of the most productive blue economies there, the ocean. So, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so that's a region I have a passion for. I've only been there once, but I'd love to go back and understand it better to help these people. What's one new thing? that you want to do? Oh, so many things. You know, when I saw Simon Perez uh, shortly before he died, he was well over 90. And I was very impressed with his, with his mind that he kept very young. And he was talking about, you know, uh, startup nation Israel and all the other yeah, things. Yeah. And I said, I said, Simon, why do you, you know, have all these ideas and all that stuff? And he says, why do you stay so young? And it was fascinating to me. And Desmond Tutu would be one of those people, Mick Jagger for the ones who like music, but they, they permeate generations. And Simon Perez said very simply to me, he said, Paul, when the list of things you want to do is longer than the list of things you have done, you are young. So I try to keep my mind young. There is so much to do still to implement the uh, sustainable development goals, to work on my personal development. And who knows, one day I might be a doctor finally, <laughs> or a priest for that matter. What's your least favorite food? My least favorite food. I do like food and it is wonderful to test that in all the different cultures and countries that you go to. But perhaps it's a little surprise I should have mentioned, but I do hate potatoes. <laughs> <laughs> so I avoid them at any cost. <laughs> but I'm sure it's a psychological thing, but I haven't had the money yet to get treatment for it. You're not going to alienate guests with that one, but I had a guest once and they said they hated pizza. And I was like, you have to oh. leave New York. <laughs> You're out. I'm sorry, buddy. <laughs> yes, yes. How can you hate a pizza? So you spent some time in Cincinnati. A lot of us. Uh, twice. Us, twice yeah. met my wife there. That's what I love about it. Favorite thing to do in Cincinnati? Oh, that's not a, a no-brainer. There are many favorite things, but we like dancing in Coney Island. Nice. That's what we did uh, quite a lot. And they were, we were both ushers at Music Hall, which gave us a an opportunity when we were studying that. My, my wife was an usher at the musical. Oh, well, you know, so Siva can relate to this. We saw the most wonderful people perform there. Yeah. Uh, from on the, the standing on the sidelines, to, yeah. Uh, oh, yeah, to the Stan Miller band and everything without having to pay for it. So we liked it. But I'd say dancing in Coney Island or perhaps uh, Skyline Chili. Why not throw that in? <laughs>
Is there someone out there that you would still like to grab a coffee with? Oh, there are many people I would love to have coffee with. And so I wouldn't want to single out anybody. I would have my father passed on and when he was only 68. So I would have loved to have more coffees with him. I'd love to have coffee with some of these wonderful leaders out there now that are risking their lives helping people with COVID and are doing amazing things. And I've always been very energized by people that we might not all appreciate, but uh, haven't had a chance like ours, but some wonderful people working with the blind or deaf blind or working, providing us with the daily foods and other things. And these are the ones that frankly like to have coffee with because they're real people. You get real discussions. Yeah. And you learn something from the heart. What's one final piece of advice or even a challenge that you want to give the next generation? Well, I think the the moment you become a leader is when you realize it's not about yourself. And the sooner you do that, the better person you become. It's incredibly liberating. So be driven by a strong sense of purpose that obviously gives you that passion and that extra energy that we talked about. But throughout your journey of life, keep a positive attitude. I'm looking out on the Mont Blanc here, which I had the fortune to climb with a lot of blind people. And, you know, it's not, you can't climb a smooth surface. Sometimes you have a bump. Sometimes you need to go down a little bit to acclimatize and, and before you can go up again. So life is never the way you want it, but keep a positive attitude. So passion, purpose, positive attitude is probably the best thing I can leave people with. And if you have a chance to look for a job or work in other companies, be sure that your values are aligned with theirs, because I only think long-term you can be successful if your values are aligned with the institutions that you are serving and you'd be so much the better for it. That's fantastic. Well, Paul, thank you, not just for your time, but for being such an amazing purpose-driven leader and just spending some time to talk to the next generation. No, thank you, Ramon, and thank you for the initiative of doing that. I appreciate it. And that's our show. Like what you heard? Please subscribe and rate us on your favorite podcasting platform. For show notes about this episode, links to things mentioned, or requests for sponsorship, visit pgalums.com slash podcast. Follow us on Twitter at pgalumpod. We'd love to hear from you. Learnings from Leaders is a production of the PNG Alumni Network, a global nonprofit founded by former PNGers committed to community, enrichment, and philanthropy. With more than 45,000 registered members worldwide, the network connects alums through global conferences, local chapters, industry events, and online content. Our nonprofit foundation supports economic empowerment communities around the world. To find out more, visit pgalums.com. Now here's a preview of next week's episode. The first week of March, you were starting to see what was happening, but no one was really grasping the enormity of it. In 24 hours, the entire sports industry shut down. I don't think any other industry did that. The apprehensive part of it was reaching out for the game plan. There was no game plan. No one had a game plan. Hey, I'm in a brand new league. I've got 230 plus players, depending on me. That was much more my DM thinking than any other sports thinking that got me through those early days and gave me my plan, my process on how to get to where we ended up. That's it for this week. I've been Roman Segel. And I'm still Andrew Tarvin. Thanks for joining Learnings from Leaders, the PNG alumni podcast. We'll see you next time.